welcome to Fast Asleep. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, we kept our promise. We did take a little time off for the holiday, but we are back before the new year. And we've even brought you a new year story. So, writer Henry Lawson has been tapped for this episode. He's often been called Australia's greatest short story writer. Oh, and he wrote bountifully, with many of his works being published in the nation's weekly magazine, The Bulletin. Unfortunately, alcoholism and mental illness forced him into psychiatric institutions. He was still beloved. Lawson was the very first Australian writer to be given a state funeral after he died of a brain hemorrhage. Statues were erected to this man. He appeared, or his stories appeared, on many postage stamps throughout the years, and even a $10 note. So, I say we find out why he was so loved, and let's do it with a story that deals with a very warm New Year's Eve. Well, I mean, it it is Australia, isn't it? Tuck in, everybody, for Henry Lawson's New Year's Night. It was dark enough for anything in Dead Man's Gap. A round, warm, close darkness in which retreating sounds seemed to be cut off suddenly at a distance of uh, a hundred yards or so, instead of growing faint and fainter and dying away, to strike the ear once or twice again, and after minutes it might seem, with startling distinctness, before being finally lost in the distance, as it is on clear, frosty, nights. So, with the sounds of horses' hoofs stumbling on the rough bridle track through the saddle, the clatter of hoof-clipped stones and scrape of gravel down the hidden siding, and the low sound of men's voices, blurred and speaking in monosyllables and at intervals, it seemed, and in hushed, awed tones, as though as though they carried a corpse. Now, to practical eyes grown used to such a darkness, and at the nearest point, the passing blurs would have suggested two riders on bush hacks, leading a third with an empty saddle on its back, a lady's or side saddle, if one could have distinguished the horns. They may have struck a soft track or level or rounded the buttress of the hill higher up. But before they had time to reach or round the foot of the spur, blurs, whispers, stumble and clatter of hoofs, jingle of bridle rings, oh, and the occasional clank together of stirrup irons seemed, well, shut off as suddenly and completely as though a great soundproof door had swung to behind them. 
it was dark enough on the glaringest of days. Down in the lonely hollow or pocket, between two spurs, at the head of a blind gully behind Mount Buckaroo, where there was a more or less dusty patch, barely defined, even in broad daylight, by a spidery dog-legged fence on three sides and a thin two-rail, dignified with the adjective split rail, though rails and posts were mostly of saplings split in halves, running along the frontage. In about the middle of it, a little slab hut, overshadowed by a big stringy bark shed, was pointed out as Johnny Mears' farm. Black, black as charcoal, said Johnny Mears. He'd never seen coal and was a cautious man whose ideas came slowly. He stooped close by the fence with his hands on his knees to sky the loom of his big shed and so get his bearings. He had been to have a look at the penned calves and see that all slip rails were up and pegged for the words of John Mears, Jr., especially when delivered rapidly and shrilly and in injured tones were not to be relied upon in these matters. Oh, it's hot enough to melt the belly out of my fiddle, said Johnny Mears to his wife, who sat on a three-legged stool by the rough table in the little whitewashed end room, putting a patch of patches over the seat of a pair of moleskin knickerbockers. He lit his pipe, moved a stool to the side of the great empty fireplace, where it looked cooler, might have been cooler, on account of a possible draft suggested by the presence of the chimney, and where, therefore, he felt a breath cooler. He took his fiddle from a convenient shelf, tuned it slowly and carefully, holding his pipe in his mouth well up and to one side, as if the fiddle were an inquisitive and restless baby. He played little drops of brandy three times right through, without variations, blinking solemnly the while. Then he put the violin carefully back in its box and started to cut up another pipeful. You should have gone, Johnny, said the haggard little woman. Oh, racking the house out. On a night like this, retorted Johnny, and starting plowing tomorrow, it ain't worthwhile. Let them come for me if they want me. Dance on a night like this, why, they'll dance in. But you promised them. It won't do you no good, Johnny. It won't do me no harm. The little woman went on stitching. Oh, it is smothering hot, said Johnny, with an impatient oath. I don't know whether I'll turn in or turn out. Under the shed tonight, 
It's too damned hot to roost indoors. She bent her head lower over the patch. One smoked and the other stitched in silence for twenty minutes or so, during which time Johnny might be supposed to have been deliberating listlessly as to whether he'd camp out on account of the heat or turn in. But he broke the silence with a clout at a mosquito on the nape of his neck and a bad word. I, I wish you wouldn't swear so much, Johnny, she said wearily, at least not tonight. He looked at her blankly. Why? Why tonight? What's the matter with you tonight, Mary? What's tonight more than any other night to you? I see no harm. A man can't swear when a mosquito sticks him. I I was only thinking of the boys, Johnny. The boys? Why, they're both on the hay in the shed. He stared at her again, shifted uneasily, crossed the other leg tightly, frowned, blinked, and reached for the matches. You look a bit off color, Mary. It's the heat that makes us all a bit ratty at these times. You better put that by and have a swill of oatmeal and water and turn in. No, it's too hot to go to bed. I couldn't sleep. I'm all right. I'll, I'll just finish this. Uh, reach me a drink from the water bag. The pannikin's on the hob there by your boot. He scratched his head helplessly and reached for the drink. When he sat down again, he felt strangely restless. Like a hen that didn't know where to lay, he put it. He couldn't settle down or keep still and didn't seem to enjoy his pipe somehow. He rubbed his head again. Hey, there's a thunderstorm coming, he said. That's what it is. And the sooner it comes, the better. He went to the back door and stared at the blackness to the east. And sure enough, lightning was blinking there. Oh, it's coming, sure enough. Now you just hang out and you keep cool for another hour and you'll feel a difference. He sat down again on the three-legged stool, folded his arms with his elbows on his knees, drew a long breath and blinked at the clay floor for a while. And then he twisted the stool round on one leg until he faced the old-fashioned spired wooden clock, the brass disc of the pendulum moving ghost-like through a scarred and scratched marine scene, Margate in England, on the glass that covered the lower half that stood alone on the slab shelf over the fireplace. The hands indicated half-past two, and Johnny, who had studied that clock and could hit the time nigh enough by it, <laughs> after knitting his brows and blinking at the dial for a full minute, by its own hand, decided, it must be getting on towards nine o'clock. It must have been the heat. Johnny stood up, raking his hair, turned to the door and back again, and then 
after an impatient gesture, took up his fiddle and raised it to his shoulder. Then the queer thing happened. Now, he said afterwards, under conditions favorable to such sentimental confidence, that a cold hand seemed to take hold of the bow through his. And, well, anyway, before he knew what he was about, he had played the first bars of When First I Met Sweet Peggy, a tune he had played often, 20 years before in his courting days, and had never happened to play since. Well, he saw it right through. The cold hand left after the first bar or two, standing up, and then still he stood with the fiddle and bow trembling in his hands, with that queer feeling still on him, and a rush of old thoughts going through his head, all of which he set down afterwards to the effect of the heat. Well, he put that fiddle away hastily, damning the bridge of it at the same time in loud but hurried tones, with the idea of covering any eccentricity which the wife might have noticed in his actions. Must have got a touch of the sun, he muttered to himself. Oh, he sat down, fumbled with knife, pipe, and tobacco, and presently stole a furtive glance over his shoulder at his wife. The washed-out little woman was still sewing, but stitching blindly, for great tears were rolling down her worn cheeks. Johnny, white-faced, on account of the heat, stood close behind her, one hand on her shoulder and the other clenched on the table. But the clenched hand shook as badly as the loose one. Oh, good God. What is the matter, Mary? You're sick. They had had little or no experience of illness. Oh, tell me, Mary, come now. Has the boy been up to anything? No, Johnny. No, it's not that. Well, what is it, then? You're taken sick. What have you been doing with yourself? It might be fever. Now hold on a minute. You wait here, quiet, while I roost out the boys and send them for the doctor and someone. No, no. I'm not sick, Johnny. It's only a little turn. I'll be all right in a minute. He shifted his hand to her head, which she dropped suddenly with a life-weary sigh against his side. Oh, now then, cried Johnny wildly, don't you faint or go into hysterics, Mary. It'll upset the boys. Think of the boys. It's only the heat. You're only taken queer. No, it's it's not that. Oh, you want to know me better than that. It was I. Johnny, I was only thinking. We've been married. Twenty years. Tonight. And it's New Year's night. Oh, and 
And I've... I've never even thought of it, said Johnny in the afterwards. Oh, shows what a godforsaken selection will make of a man. She'd thought of it all the time and was waiting for it to strike me. Why, I'd agreed to go and play at a dance at old Pipe Clay Schoolhouse all night, that very night, and leave her at home because she hadn't asked to come, and it never struck me to ask her. At home, by herself, in in that hole, and all for twenty-five bob. And I only stopped at home because eh, I got the hump and knew they'd want me bad at the school. They sat close together on the long stool by the table, shy and awkward at first. And she clung to him at the opening of the thunder, and they started apart guiltily when the first great drops sounded like footsteps on the gravel outside, just as they'd done one night time before, twenty years before. Oh, it was dark before. Mm, it was black now. The edge of the awful storm cloud rushed up and under the original darkness, like the best drop black-brushed over the cheap lamp variety, turning it gray by contrast. The deluge lasted only a quarter of an hour, but it cleared the night and did its work. There was hail before it, too, big as emu eggs, the boys said that lay feet deep in the old diggers' holes on pipe clay for days afterwards, weeks, some said. The two sweethearts of twenty years ago and tonight watched the retreat of the storm, and seeing Mount Buckaroo standing clear, they went to the back door, which opened opposite the end of the shed, and saw to the east a glorious arch of steel-blue starry sky, with the distant peaks showing clear and blue away back under the far-away stars in the depth of it. They lingered a while, arms round each other's waists, before she called the boys just as they had done this time of night, twenty years ago, after the boy's grandmother had called her. All right, mother, bawled back the boys with unfilial independence of Australian youth. We're all right. We'll be in directly. Wasn't it a pelterer, mother? They went in and sat down again. The embarrassment began to wear off. We'll get out of this, Mary, said Johnny. I'll I'll take Mason's offer for the cattle and things, and I'll take that job of Dawson's, boss or no boss. Now Johnny's bad luck was due to his inability in the past to get on with any boss 
for any reasonable length of time. I can get the boys on, too. They're doing no good here, and, and they're growing up. It ain't doing justice to them. And what's more, this life is killing you. That settles it. I was blind. Let the jumped-up selection go. It's, it's making a wall-eyed bullock of me, Mary. A dry-rotted rag of a wall-eyed bullock. <laughs> like Jimmy Nowlet's old strawberry. And Mary, you'll, you'll live in town like a lady. Somebody's coming, yelled the boys. There was a clatter of slip rails, hurriedly thrown down and clipped by horses' hoofs. Inside there. Is that you, Johnny? Yes. I knew they'd come for you, said Mrs. Mears to Johnny. You'll have to come, Johnny. There's no get out of it. Here's Jim Mason with me, and we've got orders to stun you and pack you if you show fight. <laughs> the blessed fiddler from Mudgy didn't even turn up. Dave Regan burst his concertina, and they're in a fix. Mm, well, I can't leave the missus. Oh, that's all right. We've got the school missus's mare and side saddle. She says you ought to be jolly well ashamed of yourself, Johnny Mears, for not bringing your wife on New Year's night. And so you ought. Johnny did not look shamefaced for reasons unknown to them. Uh, the boys couldn't find the horses, put in Mrs. Mears. Johnny was just going down the gully again. He gave her a grateful look and felt a strange new thrill of admiration for his wife. And uh, there's a bottle of the best put by for you, Johnny, added Pat McDummer, mistaking Johnny's silence. And we'll call it 30 Bob. Johnny's ideas were coming slowly again after the recent rush. Or, uh, two quid. There you are. I don't want two quid, nor one either, for taking my wife to a dance in New Year's night, said Johnny Mears. Run and put on your best bib and tucker, Mary. And she hurried to dress as eager and excited and smiling to herself as girlishly as she had done on such occasions on evenings before that bright New Year's night, 20 years ago. Good night.